Welcome to the Film Comment podcast. I'm Devika Girish, co-deputy editor of Film Comment. If you've been following the podcast and the Film Comment letter, you'll know that for the last two weeks, we've been reporting from the 2023 Cannes Film Festival with dispatches, interviews, podcasts, and more. Before the festival ended last Sunday, I gathered three wonderful critics and programmers, Justin Chang, Rachel Rosen, and Dennis Lim, all of whom serve on the selection committee of the New York Film Festival, for a look back at the can that was. As experienced festival veterans, the three of them joined me in reflecting on the trends of this year's festival, including the preponderance of long films, experiments with historical representation, and hybrids of fiction and documentary. We also discussed some of the festival's late premieres, including films by Catherine Breyat, Hong Sang-soo, and more. I hope you enjoy the conversation and keep your eyes on filmcommon.com for more can rap coverage coming later this week. Hello everyone. Uh, we've almost wound down here at the Cannes Film Festival. It's the final Friday of the festival. We just have another weekend to go, but most films have already premiered except of course two highly anticipated ones by Alice Rohrwacher and Ken Loach. But I think we're ready to start looking back at what has been. And to do that, I have a wonderful crew of folks here. I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves. Let's start with Justin. Hello, uh, Justin Chang, LA Times. And? Fresh Air. And? <laughs> New York Film Festival Selection Committee. There you go. That, you need to start <laughs> the most with important that, one. Justin. I wanted to <laughs> bury the lead, you know. Uh, Rachel? Uh, I'm Rachel Rosen. I'm also a member of the New York Film Festival Main Slate Selection Committee. And? And Dennis Lim. I'm the Artistic Director of the New York Film Festival. So listeners may be sensing a theme here. It is true that we all, including myself, have roles to play in the New York Film Festival. Um, and so this is, you can think of this as a kind of NYFF special episode of the Film Common podcast. Uh, these folks are all... Um, you know, festival veterans. So I'm I'm really excited to hear from you, um, you know, your kind of experience of the festival. So I know we were just discussing some themes and Rachel, you pointed out the elephant in the room, which is... Duration. A lot of things are long at this year's can. So let's start by talking about that. Uh, Rachel, you defined it in two different ways, how duration plays out at this year's festival. Yeah, I mean, the obvious is the length of the films themselves. There are just a large number of films longer than uh, two hours, um, longer than three hours, um, some stretching into the past the four hour mark. Um, and I think that's, I mean, it's interesting in a way for programmers because um we're seeing films here in a way that most audiences won't see them, but uh, to see multiple three plus hour films a day is definitely something new. Uh, but the festival also had me thinking about duration in terms of uh, career duration um, and how some of the directors who've been um, standards here uh, in the competition and out of competition um, are uh, approaching filmmaking in their later years. Um, yeah. And as I was saying, like, uh, you know, whether it's 
they are turning to honing uh, a specific skill or craft or whether they're still in exploration mode is pretty interesting once um, you get to older directors. I mean, I'm curious, maybe Dennis, you can speak to this. You know, I think sometimes people point out things that seem like trends, even though they've just been happening for a long time or cyclically. And I'm curious that it does it feel anomalous uh, and like somehow culturally notable, the number of long films? I, I think that is hard to ignore or really avoid. I mean, just from a scheduling point of view, it's been such you know a part of our day-to-day realities of like how many films can we see? I think I think most people unavoidably saw fewer films this year if you were committed to seeing a certain number of three, four-hour films. Um, but I guess my in in response to your question, this you know trend spotting is is an unavoidable part of festival coverage um and i think festivals are um great ways to experience um films and also a a really interesting way to to sort of take the temperature of the current moment but they're also very artificial environments like nobody watches films this way as rachel was just just pointing out um and i think this, um, you know, just this, this compressed period of time where we're taking in multiple films, juxtapositions do, you know, suggest themselves. Uh, and I think the, Justin will know this, those of us who are in the business of having to uh, write, opine, frame the festival, will we'll, we'll always be looking for these um, trends, uh, themes. Uh, and sometimes, sometimes they're there. And I saw, <laughs> sometimes I think we, 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 um, we we there is there is a risk i think of of not having enough distance not having enough sleep yeah. uh you know of, of trying to, to to connect one film to another but it has been interesting to think about about some of these these trends that we were chatting about before we started recording but i'm always very wary of um you know festival takes uh, as somebody who's done, done some myself, but uh, I also am at the stage honestly at the stage of the festival where i don't even trust my judgment so yeah, I having written some of those takes myself over over many over many years, and um, and and you know they serve a purpose sort of. But I think I've been trying to do that less. Almost like I think an honest appraisal of what the themes of the festival are would be just, hey, here's what I saw today, and I'm just completely exhausted. Um, I was really glad to have seen, like for example, Steve McQueen's Occupied City, which is um, one of the longest ones for sure at four and a half hours uh, with intermission uh, included. Um, I did manage to see that in LA before I came over here and I was very grateful because I just, I know people who, yeah, contended with that here and stuck it out here and I don't envy anyone having to do that. It was also just helpful to have a few days to think about it and then then see something else. I couldn't imagine watching it here i mean yeah. amid all the other films yeah absolutely and i think you know can often feels like a lot of festivals but can especially like simultaneously the best and the absolute worst place and environment in which to see a movie um i will say though that um i do think there is something like there is i mean it's maybe not i don't know if it's trend that's such a, w- a weird way to call it, to just think about it but there are a lot long it's like everyone notices i mean this is why we're talking about it it's like i remember i remember the year when it was like i think it was 2011 when jaylon was here with once upon a time in anatolia and that was like 
a fleet two and a half hours. And it was at the very end. And everyone was groaning. <laughs> oh, my God. Such a long, you know, uh, Jalen. And it's like, what tedium. And yeah, it's a great film. And it was and it was actually in that. It's like, I think now it's like, and Jalen is like a three and something hour. And it's three like one of the, it's actually not that long compared to some of the others. It's I like know. a breeze. So, so I think there is something, um, something, yeah, d- duration. Yeah. This year. And I guess the, I mean, why I'm curious also about duration is that it does expect something of us that is increasingly Mm -hmm. difficult or rare to come by you know I think obviously the trend the media trend so to speak is towards things being shorter more broken up you know know about that though you don't think blockbusters are longer than I was just gonna say like all the Marvel movies are like yeah I mean, I was going to say people, like TV is... Well, TV is also, you know, it's... it's Sprawling. It's, yeah, exactly. Even if it's episodic, it's a cumulative, like, the you know, massive duration. Like. I think you're right, but, like, the blockbusters are very plotted. And I think some of the films I've experienced here, when I think of duration, I'm thinking of, like, Youth, you know, the Wang Bing film, where I... Or the Occupied City... Where you feel time in a way you don't feel when you're watching a long I mean, there's a, no? there's an argument to be made that that short attention span s- sort of requires the longer duration of some of the less plot-driven mm. films in that it, it takes longer for us to settle down and stop expecting plot to come yes. at us every five minutes. Um, and so a lot of times I really appreciate that extra time because I find it it takes me a little while to settle into the pace of each individual film. I would say as well that I think, yeah, duration is... You know, has many uses in 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 cinema, and I think um, these films don't all work with time in the same way. Uh, I think you know you can feel time in in in, in different ways, uh, and I don't know that Steve McQueen is using duration the same way as Wang Bing. I, I think those are very different films, all. despite being long, you know, documentaries. And I think it's very easy to equate duration with slow cinema. And I think that's like a little bit of a misleading. I don't know that there's anything terribly slow about Wang Bing's film, which is full of... Um, the opposite, perhaps. The, yeah, it's, it's extremely eventful and, 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 you know, just full of characters uh, and energy and and a kind of I mean it's, it's also with the pace of mass production that yeah. film so yeah. it feels rapid and overstuffed in a way I mean not not the film itself but it captures that feeling of just mass volume yeah yeah and also uh, the other thing that that duration always you know people tends to bring up this question of indulgence right like does the film need to be a certain length and i i wonder sometimes if these films if we really take a look at are they going to be shorter when they eventually premiere like you know these these are often films that were you know were were some of them i assume were rushed you know just to 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 make a can deadline so it's it's not inconceivable that some of these films will lose a few minutes when we when we see them later in the year and i think um you brought up jaylon justin and i did want to get into about dry grasses a little bit specifically because the film changes gear so aggressively in the third hour so also something about the duration is that you know you have to wait that long in order to, I think, experience... I, I was not a very big fan of this film. Mm-hmm. And to experience, um, you know, what I think is its 
redeeming part, like very striking bit. And I know so many people who left before they got to it. And that's a big gamble, you know, to play with an audience, to make them sit through that much, hoping that they'll get to that part. I mean, maybe for him, it's not like the redeeming part, but it's like such a gear change to do in the very, in like after two and a half hours of a movie. Absolutely. And and I like the movie. I don't love it, but, um, Something I liked about it was I felt it had a really good sense of modulation over that three-hour running time. And it sets up this, you know, very compelling and kind of juicy plot premise at the beginning. Which is, and I'll just summarize that, which is like, you you know, about... (laughs) A teacher, I believe, in Anatolia, right? In 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 like, in, yeah. in like a rural school in Anatolia, who has like a close friendship with a student, and eventually is accused of being too close to the girl students. Um, and it's not entire. I mean, he seems like a pretty bad guy. He's very icky and sleazy. Um, so it's just you know you slowly build up to that, and then him sort of arguing with the, his fellow teachers and questioning his own behavior and basically looking at his life and the things and the sort of emptinesses he's trying to fill. But then there is this him and his roommate, who's also a teacher at the school, get into this slightly competitive relationship with a woman, a teacher from another school. And that's when the film really goes there is when it takes a surprising and sort of richer turn. And the first two hours are, I don't know if it's something sort of... um, gratingly topical about it like an attempt to be topical in a way that didn't that seemed uncharacteristic frankly yeah like he's almost jabbing at political concerns in a certain way that feels maybe a little reactionary or courting some you know and but it's like the it's it's almost like the unifying glue for this movie is just um just what a complete asshole this main character is you know and that's that's like the that's what that's the consistency yeah. in a way and um but no and you 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 do become invested in that the, the interaction with him and his student and all the ways in which it does or doesn't cross a line and the, the kind of the fallout of that and then it kind of just drops out of the middle and then it brings it back to the end in a way that you don't entirely expect and then it ends with this really kind of lovely passage that feels elegiac and moving in a way that i'm still not entirely sure it's like earned I'm, it kind of comes out of left field but then and then there's you laid out that plot so so well and so lucidly in a way I cannot right now. But um, the competitiveness with the roommate, with them um, there over, um, they be basically become rivals for a woman's affections, and that is in some ways the richest dynamic there. And um, just there's this extraordinary conversation. I mean, this is what I like about Jalen. He kind of gets to these conversations that are just so lacerating and really, really. Um, I felt like. It kind of and that it merited section, that buildup. That to section extent. benefits from duration also so much because there, it's something, it's very novelistic. It's like the accumulation of conversational details and buildup. And the first two hours feel so plotted. But the break in the film comes when the oh, film yes. exits the film. I mean, he exits the film. So there's like a fourth wall break, which is also something that we've seen in multiple movies at this can. Yes. Killers of the Flower Moon, exiting the frame of the narrative, Eureka in a in a way, uh, the Jonathan Glazer film, several of the nonfiction films in a different way uh-huh. in terms of uh, getting at real stories through reenactments of real stories. 
Like Four Daughters, the Ben Hania film. I actually just wrote a little bit about it this morning, so I will do my best. This is based on a real life story of, it is a family of four daughters and their mother, um, Tunisian Muslim family. And the two older daughters at ages 16 and 15 uh, ran away and joined ISIS. Um, and leaving their mother and the two younger daughters behind. And so um, so the director, Kauter Ben Hani, I hope I am saying that correctly, um, tackles the story in a really interesting way by having, you know, the, the two older daughters who 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 were radicalized, of course, are not there to um, to be part of this project, but the two younger daughters and the mother are. And they bring in a very well-known um, Egyptian-Tunisian actress to play the mother. And so real mom and actress mom are kind of constantly conversing throughout. Um, and then two, uh, I, I gather, uh, younger actresses are brought in to play the older teenage daughters. So it's a very kind of somewhat uh, Brechtian, you know, dis- device. Oh, I just remembered to total uh, digression. The Wes Anderson also has kind of an arch sort of. <laughs> that's, that's what that's, I was yeah, thinking, thinking of. Yes. Yeah. It's really weird to talk, go, jump from Four Daughters to Asteroid City. <laughs> framing um, within a framing <laughs> within a framing. These yeah. very kind of arch framing devices. And I think the, the in the Ben Hania film, Four Daughters, it works really well for the most part. I was really, it's it's very engaging. It's a, it's a very funny film too. And, in, and, and also grappling with, with a real break and that that the 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 ruptured um form of it in some ways i feel mirrors the just the, the it, it sort of emblematizes the idea that there's there's this rupture in this family yeah. and I, I think, and Rachel, I think you've seen many movies let do this maybe not as well maybe better more than i have you know but it because it could feel a little too much of like too much of an art exercise but um but i was uh i actually thought in this way it was actually a, a more interesting way to get into um sort of the questions of, you know, where, and in, in, in this case, you know, where does the mother's responsibility lie? Does her overprotectiveness, did her, you know, she's, she feels a lot of guilt over how much how much um, responsibility she has to bear for what happened. And so it, it really delves into all of that. I mean, I, I'll, I'll, I think it's a device that's much more normalized in nonfiction filmmaking than it is in the narrative. So I think it is maybe more noteworthy that those devices are being used in more conventional, what would otherwise be more conventional narrative films. Yeah. I mean, do you want to say a little bit, Rachel, about the state of documentary at Cannes? <laughs> uh, I mean, it's, I, I, I would say it's like a little too soon to in the history of documentary, it can to say very much about the yeah. state of documentary. It can. I mean, but, I I, in this I think lineup, it's yeah. it is remarkable that you know the evolution of no documentaries being shown to only documentaries being about the film business being shown to multiple <laughs> documentaries um, in different forms, uh, taking different formal approaches being shown both in competition and out of competition. To me, that's a great step forward. And also, I think people have noted that the, you know, the winners of the last two major film festivals in Berlin and Venice were documentaries. So yeah, that's true. And um, just in, you know, I haven't seen Four Daughters, but I wanted to mention a film that we haven't talked about on the podcast yet, which is Mambar Pirat by Rosine Bakum, which she's a documentary filmmaker. I don't know if uh, you know, you may have seen Delphine's Prayer, Shay Jolie Coiffure. I think um, I love her documentaries. They're very personal films that are, I think, 
raw and intimate, like driven by a real curiosity, but also a kind of compositional um, like talent and like kind of a, like an ideological, you know, rigor. And this is her first fiction film. It was in the Kinzan in the director's fortnight. Um, but it is entirely based on the real life stories of her cousin, mom, who's name is Mambar Piret, who's a seamstress. So she just plays a lightly fictionalized version of herself and all her friends and neighbors play themselves. So it's like, you know, capturing a documentary reality and then putting it through the barest of filters in a way. And um, I found the film quite interesting because her documentaries seem to me, they seem to probe the nature of representation and narrative and like how we make sense of real people and things you know in a in a very active way and when she does this kind of you know transmogrification into fiction it takes on a pretty cliched form not necessarily in a bad way but like you know it it feels for the first two-thirds of the film like a social realist drama that that we've seen before in which a character undergoes a series of miseries. But, you know, when I spoke to her and in the press notes, it's very much based on the testimonies of her cousin. So it really forces you, it brings you really close to the character. Everything feels very natural. And it forces you to kind of grapple with like what we're used to, like how we're used to consuming reality and how we're used to consuming reality in the package of plot and certain things become cliches, but cliches come from real places. So it, it creates that uh, very, for me, you know, productive, like almost dilemma or confrontation. Um, and I thought that was, you know, even, I don't really know how it, it, whether it should be classified as documentary or fiction, but it's really playing in that space that we're talking about. I mean, it's funny, I haven't seen the film, and I'm sure it has nothing to do with it, but it sounds like it has a huge resonance, sorry, with the trier, right? Like, that's the the plot within that movie has yeah. to do with taking things from real life and how you make art out of them. Yeah. Um, Which is also the plot of May, December, I think, as people right. have noted. And But also what you're describing, this is not, you know... I think we can at this point say nothing is new uh, in cinema, but w this this tension between fiction and reality, and you know, reenacting re reality, playing oneself. You can go back to Robert Flaherty. You go back to neorealism. I mean, it is you, you, there is a through line to be traced. Um, Lisandro Alonso's early films were very much in this mode. I also haven't seen the Embarcum film. I'm looking forward to it, but um, you know, I think um, it's it's a strategy that's never really been absent from 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 cinema and i think you know where where the films sit on the spectrum and and their relationship their particular relationship to reality might change um and the formal strategies might 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 change but i think this you know cinema's attraction to the real and entanglement with the real is eternal is the kind of the essence i mean i'd love to medium. also talk about wong bing's other documentary in the lineup of course the three and a half or something. Our youth is the one everyone's talking about, but he has a one-hour <laughs> short, <laughs> as as um, sixty minutes is considered at this year's can, called "Man in Black." And I bring it up because it's just so different mm -hmm. from youth, but also from his other work. And it is somewhere in the realm of what we're talking about, where it's a documentary, but it's highly stylized and it's uh, almost a performance piece. Dennis, you want to? talk about it in brief yeah i mean i think as i was watching it it's in initially seemed very different just because of 
you know what you were the 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 style of the film is different. He's working with he, Wang Bing typically shoots himself. Um, you know, it's all, has collaborators because of just the duration of, of the films and how long he's 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 um, working with these people. But he he typically shoots his own films. He's working here with the famous French DP um, Caroline Champatier, uh, and he worked with an editor Claire Atherton, who's known for her work with Chantal Ackerman. So the whole film list looks very different and feels very different, and it is. Uh, Kind of a, a one man, you know, um, one man performance. Uh, this Chinese composer Wang Xilin, um, uh, who, and you. But, but I, it also occurred to me as 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 the film evolved that it's it is quite close to the heart of Wang Bing's project. Um, many of his films are premised on testimony, um, on, on re- people just really recounting their histories, uh, and that is what uh, Wang does in this film. Um, his subject. Uh, and what's interesting to me is to to see him work with this idea of of testimony in a different register and and with different tools, you know, to 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 create this stylized performance piece uh, and to use music as a form of testimony to supplement words, uh, right. which is what he usually does. Because the for context, the film is about this Chinese composer Wang Shilin who underwent basically many horrors uh, during and after the Cultural Revolution, was in labor camps, was tortured. Many of his family members died. And his music, his compositions very much reflect his experiences and his memories from those times. His, I mean, what seems like his post-traumatic, you know, mm-hmm. stress. And I think it is very interesting to consider in relation to so many films at this festival, which we've talked about on the podcast, be it the Jonathan Glazer film, The Zone of Interest, uh, be it, I mean, Occupied City, be it the Scorsese film, which are all trying to represent, like using different strategies to represent history outside of using archival material or directly showing what happened. And this, I think, is in conversation with those. Um, And it's very striking because it takes, like Dennis, you were saying, music as a kind of testimony, Mm -hmm. but also like body, like what does the... Yeah, which is that he's naked throughout the whole film. Right. Right. And he's like doing these choreographed movements, which sometimes I think are supposed to evoke movements he may have done at the labor camp, like tasks he may have undertaken there, like how his body would have contorted in, you know, in, in various ways. And so it is so different from like testimonial documentaries that we're used to in which so much the voice and face are vested with just so much of the truth claim. Yep. And here so there's so much else happening, you know, the body where and his body's naked and filmed up close. And sometimes his voice is drowned out by the music, mm-hmm. which can be really loud and jarring. And it creates this dialogue also with his testimony, which sometimes is like he shrieks and Mm -hmm. gets very worked up. And I mean, it may be a little bit, probably there's a little bit of theatricality to it. So it just made me like think about testimony very differently. Speaking also of um, ruptures in the fabric of reality and fiction, someone who's been doing that for a long time, Mr. Hong Sang-soo. Yes. (laughs) yeah, he had his thirtieth feature here wow. at, the, uh, at the um how old is he at the Kanzana directors for now I'm not uh off the top of my head, I'm not sure or very early sixties okay, that's my guess that's a uh, lot of films to have made um 
And it was a closing night film of the of the director's fortnight last night. Uh, it's called In Our Day. It's be the third third film in as many years with In. That's <laughs> he had a film called In Water in Berlin Isle. He had In Front of Your Face here two years ago. Ooh, and then also Day appears, of course, Multi- as a <laughs> in many Hong great films. motif. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you want to tell? Do you want to summarize the plot? I, Sure. I mean, it's it's very simple. It's I I found it wonderful. I will say it's two intersect intersecting storylines unfolding. I think Inter- in the course inter- of a day. Okay, I think intersecting is sorry, alternating. There you yeah. go. Yeah, but that's that is the but whole I, point of the film. Like the yeah. question of like what what is the what is the relationship between True. these two parts? Right? Yeah, so. I do think they intersect, but not in the way that you would think. Like not very literally, like as in some other Hong films. Yeah. But basically, there are two storylines. One is about an actress played by Kim Min Hee, who's returned after I think a stint studying abroad, and she's staying with a friend. And her cousin visits her and there's little episodes they eat from and they search for a cat. They talk about acting. And then the other strand is about a poet who has become really popular popular in Korea recently, is being filmed by a young film student for a documentary and being interviewed by some other young student who wants to be a poet. And very importantly, he's given up drinking and smoking. Uh, and that is very difficult for him. It's the first appearance of um, non-alcoholic beer in a Hong Kong <laughs> Not for too long. I won't spoil <laughs> it. But um, and so they, there's episodes from each story, and they alternate. But he alternates between the two with intertitles, kind of setting them up. The intertitles are also, you know, he's used he's used um, intertitles before, but I think they're a pretty interesting narrative device here. Yeah, absolutely, because Killers of the Flower Moon has them, The Sweet East has them. Um, what else? Well, I just think it's interesting the way he uses them in terms of the way they relate to the what you actually see. sections yeah. that they're they seem like they're describing, but aren't exactly. Yeah, it's a very curious um, narrative voice <laughs> that comes across in the intertitles. Yeah, and it's not clear if what they describe ha- has happened already or, or is will happening. Happen. Or is what will is the happen. scene you're about to see or is relate how it's or related to Or is in any way scene? relevant to what is actually happening. Right. So I think there's like many... Yeah, uh, and I think that, so I've said this before, but, you know, my favorite Hongs are the kind of structural ones where there's like parallel storylines and looping back and forth and temporal play and you know misidentifications and this isn't quite that but because of these little things like the intertitles the sly resonances between the stories it feels very structurally complex but also has the simplicity of like the woman who ran you Mm -hmm. know of of just people conversations a kind of chronological unfolding and um, I found it very funny I mean in water was actually quite moving and mm-hmm. I, and uh, the last few films have had you know a lot of um, melancholy and I thought this was very wry and funny and but it has melancholy at the course. end too I mean it's about growing old <laughs> it is about very much about growing old um, and I think that's you know something that's been on his mind in the last few films relation intergenerational relationships uh, are foregrounded again, um, and I think the structure. I, I agree with you. It's it's simple, but it's also really 
strange and tricky. I mean, like, what, what, why are these, you know, why, why are these narratives um, alternating, and, w- and and in what way are they parallel, and what way do they intersect? Are we supposed to draw connections, like you know, actual tangible connections between one character and another? Um, and I think it, it leaves a lot of room uh, for you to for you, um, for you to to guess uh, at what the, those relationships might be. You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. Another film I wanted to talk about that some of us have seen recently is Catherine Breyat's Last Summer. Justin, you and I saw it this morning. Speaking of intergenerational relationships. (laughs) (laughs) Say more. (laughs) Yes, thank you. Yeah, this is Catherine Breyat's first movie in a while, I think. think. Uh, Yeah, Yeah. and I don't think she's been in competition since uh, Last Mistress Mistress and Vieille Maîtresse. Um, This one, um, and this one is actually a remake of a Danish film, Queen of Hearts, that I have not seen. I have seen. Okay, I'm curious to hear what you think. I'm, I'm quite glad, having liked this one a lot, that I didn't see the, um, the original because I think a lot of it, and I don't know, I'm curious to know, Devika, how much she's transformed. But yeah, you know, um, Lea Drucker gives this really great performance um, as a woman who's happily married, uh, has, um, you know, uh, to the second marriage uh, for, for her husband. They have two um, young adopted daughters. And this is about the relationship that develops between her and her stepson when he comes to stay. And, uh, you know, from the minute he's walking around the house with his shirt off, the the, the tension is palpable. You know where this is going. But, um, and it's a Catherine Breyer movie, so it's, that's not at all surprising. But, um, but what is surprising and really kind of great is just the shifting power dynamics that erupt once that is kind of, <laughs> once they're over the hump, as it were. Um, and it's... <laughs> I was waiting. I just, <laughs> yes. That wasn't even, that was just, that was just, okay. You, uh, Once they are Justin, past the... <laughs> the prime reason I have you on the podcast is to throw puns at me. More and more puns. That's, that's okay. the main reason I'm on the, on the committee as well. Um, yes. And so, but no, it becomes really fascinating. And Drucker's performance is really great. Mm. She shows you just this, you you know, all the ways that this could play out. And we sh- I won't give it away, um, but... It's very surprising what do, the way the way the direction she takes the she's like delighted by what she's like she's excited by what happens as she has to kind of this sort of web of lies that gets spun um, and uh, I I was just I am curious how yeah. does the and, and without I am curious how different or similar yeah it is I can to the, say a little bit Danish about film. that because I okay I only found out yesterday I I hadn't read too much about this film. Uh, I was going to go in kind of blind. And then I found out yesterday it's an adaptation of Queen of Hearts, this uh, Danish film that four years ago at Sundance, on my last night at Sundance, I had an open slot. I just walked into the screening room and that was the film. 
And so I was so confused that she's remaking a Sundance, like a film I saw at Sundance four years ago. But I actually really liked that film, Queen of Hearts. And I think it's a very solid film uh, by the director Mai El Tuki. And this is, until the end, quite a play-by-play adaptation. But there are differences that I think speak to both Breyat's perspective, but and also kind of French cultural perspective to these kinds of sexual transgressions. So this Danish film, it's it's very like almost everything is the same. This older woman is a lawyer who works with young women who are raped or assaulted. Um, yeah, which is a crucial part of the film. Yeah. Her husband has a son, a, like a problem child, as he's called, uh, who's like 16 or so, who comes to stay with them. She has an affair and then, you know, things happen. And... What I was struck by, by the Briard film, which is, again, I just can't, almost can't judge the Briard film on its own terms because it's so familiar. Like, I wasn't surprised by anything. And so much of the pleasure of Queen of Hearts for me was being surprised by all the shifting power dynamics. But, you know, Queen of Hearts is quite erotic. So the first thing is that I don't think the sex in this film is erotic or fun. It's actually, like, weird and you know, weirdly dull and like visually sort of like, you know, framed in a way that doesn't really emphasize like their bodies. And so the that film is quite erotic. So it like builds up a kind of passion and intensity. And then the latter half of the film, you know, when things come to a head and this main character has a kind of, she switches you know, into a pretty abusive register is also way more intense in that film. And the ending is completely different. And I don't want to spoil the ending of either film, but let's just say that film ends in a very dark place. And this ends in a much more ambiguous place. And I don't even know, it's just that I think that film is emotionally a lot more intense it's the lead actress in queen of hearts is trin durholm and i thought she was like fantastic in that film but also it has a strongly moralistic right i was gonna say i feel like everything i I haven't seen the the original too but it seems like the assignment was like katherine brea take this film and strip away the moralism which is you know i think evident not just in the rewritten third act but in like I would imagine every choice that she makes uh, it's so throughout the film. so stripped down, and uh, Leia's performance, the actress's performance, is so much more muted here than in that other film. And I don't. The other film was not. Um, when I say moralistic, it's not. It's still very. I mean, I don't want to reduce it. Like it's not didactic, but it is very striking how this film also. You know, it also fits into a canon of French films about. May-December relationships, if I may, and like sexual transgression. So there's um, a different kind of lens towards it, a kind of, yeah, not moralistic, but also there's um, on both sides room for much more ambiguity than like a straightforward uh, confrontation with the power imbalance. Um, Dennis, you saw it too. Yeah, yeah, no, and I agree with what what you're you're both saying. I I I think this film is... uh, Fascinating, not for, you know, this transgression, but like what happens after um, people find out about it, uh, how the characters respond to it. Uh, and not just 
you know, not just the main, the, the, the main, the, the main characters, but like the people around them. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's hard to talk about it without giving, giving too much away. I, I, I think it's a fascinating project. I was also very, um, surprised to hear that, um, Brea was remaking, you know, this, this relatively recent Danish film, but the, the project was initiated by a producer, Said Ben Said, who's, I think, one of the, you know, I think one of the most interesting producers working in, in, in French cinema. Um, and he, he's, he, Said works with um, Paul Verhoeven. You'll not be surprised <laughs> to hear, perhaps. Um, you know, and uh, he saw this film um, and optioned it specifically with Brea in mind to wow, remake okay. it. So I think this is, you know, a pretty interesting example of a producer initiating a project. Um, with one specific filmmaker in mind uh and i think she fits she fits the material perfectly you're right though it's true i mean she there is a discretion to the filming of the sex scenes and um but also a dur- speaking of duration you know these somewhat long takes where she's not it's not a very montagey kind of that even the first sex scene which is actually between leah's character and her husband yeah. and um and it's which, funny too, which is what it's is. It's funny, yeah. and it actually, you know, and there is a, a sweetness and a hotness to it, despite, you know, or perhaps because of the visual discretion that she shows. But I think, in a way, too, it it it, it is sort of, you know, maybe runs counter or flies in the face of Catherine Brea's, you know, early films, yeah. which we so associate with, you know, with like romance and and fat girl and whatnot, with with um really with sexual explicitness. And yeah. here, it's like it's not that it doesn't interest her, but she's really, really just like just paring away and cutting to just this is an exploration of power really yeah and i think one thing that also i was struck by is again in the danish film it's very much framed as this older woman who is confronting her aging and so this affair being something that she's seeking some confirmation of her enduring youthfulness there are scenes of her examining her body we don't get any kind of psychological grounding like that here right i mean there's Honestly, it's hard to understand other than like just maybe pure lust, why, or like the thrill of transgression. There's no, we don't have a sense that Boredom. she's... Boredom. You get the sense that she's oh, bored. there you go. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so it it really doesn't have those like familiar kind of footholds that such films give us, which makes it like really such an interesting companion piece yeah. to May, December, you know, which is also leaves you sort of groping for answers and and leaves like the older woman like pretty opaque which i think is is rather remarkable yeah and in the lack of judgment the lack of even why does this even need explanation and you know i think both those films kind of close the door on that like the, the idea that we need to you know really scrutinize or cast about or find these motivations yeah. you know so yeah i think what's interesting about may december and the Briat, when you think of them together, is, and I'm also thinking of like the French and the American kind of approach to this topic. They're about very different kinds of transgressions, to be clear, but still, is there is this minimalism, this paring down of mora- moralism, as Justin described it in the Briat. And in the Todd Haynes, it's artifice that imposes that distance. It's like this kind of looking at ourselves as we consume something that I think you know, evades like easy moralism. And uh, that is a theme I wanted to discuss a little bit too, the use of artifice, irony, detachment, indirection. I mean, just various ways of representing morally fraught 
or morally kind of heavy subjects, be it historical crimes or these kinds of social transgressions, which I think to me, it seems like a trend, like there is this cultural and aesthetic grappling with like, how do you show these things without having a pre-digested or didactic morality to them? And um, I mean, I think, Rachel, I know you mentioned uh, the Aki, Aki Korosmaki film, Fallen Leaves. I think that's actually a great example uh, of a very different, you know, it's not really in any way related to these films, but he actually for a long time has been using this drollness, this artifice, but getting to uh, talking about contemporary issues, sociopolitical issues in fairly direct ways. Um, did you want to say a little about that? Well, I guess I think what's interesting about that in the context of this conversation is that he's always done that. And part of the distance has been that his films have been absolutely timeless. You have no idea whether you're in the 19... 50s or the 1990s. Uh, and in this case, he very um, pointedly brings in the outside world, uh, the war in Ukraine, even if the characters and their work settings are still pretty hard to pin down temporally. Um, and so I think that's an interesting development that it really um, makes you uh, more specifically He's saying that these ways that people approach capitalism or deal with capitalism are current issues and not just historical ones. Yeah, I mean, I I do think like his last few films, which are about immigrants, also had that a little bit about immigration, yeah, especially, you know, Arab immigration or immigration from Middle East and North Africa into Europe. And so... For me, in several of his recent films, there has been this attempt to speak about now while also being in his own sort of out of time, quaint little world. And it does create very interesting juxtapositions because to me, even the treatment of the characters' workplaces feels very current. And maybe the point is that it's always been this way, but like the gig economy, Absolutely. the way the gig economy is portrayed feels very now, you know, the way it's like completely stripped of protections. And it's like they're out of timeness. Like they go to these spare homes. There's nothing there. Seems to be a product of their very bare bones and precarious existence. So there's something in this film where I think it's almost like the aesthetic is being justified or produced by the present. Yeah, I think even... I don't know why this scene from the Karzmaki film, which is uh, called Fallen Leaves, sticks out to me, but it's it's an early scene when the female character is fired from her job because she's been taking home like expired, you know, products from a grocery store. And it's it's like there's just and there is this timelessness of the film, but there's something about that. I don't know, that just felt very specifically now. I don't know. Um it's interesting because um just I don't know, and just the the extreme pettiness, the extremely punitive Again, these are not new things, but... When she steals that, and then her friend says, I took this too, it could have killed someone. Like, it had expired a day ago. And I think it feels now, not because, like, thieving at your job and getting in trouble has, like, always happened, but something about, like, um, weaponizing this contemporary emphasis on everything needs to be new. If You know, if it's expired, throw it away. I mean, there's a lot of conversation about how expiration dates are a product of, like 
a consumer frenzy, right? Like we have to keep updating everything. We have to keep buying new things. And like, it's a construct that makes people like fear that as long, if they're not purchasing things all the time, like they're somehow going to die. So I think that particular line and the mm. fact that that's what she's stealing an expired product and gets in trouble for that made me like yeah. threw me into the present yeah. in a way. I mean, his movies are always, not always, but many times about envisioning a better world and that that's true of this movie but i think the constant radio radio blaring of news from ukraine yeah it's a really it's an interesting tension and it keeps that almost kind of utopian idealistic kind of vision of the world that i think he does give us and hold on to but it makes it it complicates it i think and weirdly that radio broadcast is somehow like similar to occupied city in a way yes, because it's so yeah unrelated to the events of the film and it just you, keeps cutting in and out of this pretty monotonous radio broadcast and I found that confusing at first in the chorus Maki because I was like this seems like lazy shorthand or this seems slapped on just to say oh the war is happening but the more I think about it there's something produced in that dissonance and I think that's what like Occupied City is kind of trying to do too and I know Justin you wanted to Maybe say a little about that, yeah. and yeah. I, I I wrote a little bit about this, and I'll I, I'll be brief on this, but I, <laughs> you know, Occupied City, um, which I like more than a lot of people, including you, Devika, but um, and also, and I wanted to talk about that and the Jonathan Glazer film, The Zone of Interest, and it's interesting because you know critics especially complain a lot about oh another Holocaust movie, and I kind of you know I totally get that, and that's been my complaint too, but I was just really taken with how these two movies. I don't know. I think we're seeing a a more a less obvious kind of um, of Holocaust movie, if you even care to use that designation. It's like um, there's sort of like like a, a kind of negative space kind of view of these things, where because the Glazer movie is set completely outside of the you know the the gates of the walls of of Auschwitz, and then um, it, which is you know. I think also just the refusal of violence of just whether it's and in, in Occupied City it's no showing archival Re footage there's just there, of, um, of visual violence visual violence oh yes, yes. Um, yeah. emotional psychological moral violence absolutely and but sonic and, and so uh, sonic perhaps yeah. most of all but this kind of I, I appreciate that this question you, you you bring up about how do we find new ways to represent these things which have been perhaps over represented. Um, I, and I know people will have problems with the way the Glazer movie goes about that. I, I, but I appreciated that it was just, um, how do you, uh, you know, present evil, but not in, in, in obvious ways and in ways that are actually more, um, more indicting perhaps even. And, and with, with Occupied City, because, and I, there's, that movie is all about dissonance. I mean, and it's, it's why I think it's a challenge and I, I did go in and out of it, but um, because the footage is all present day and yet the stories you hear are all, of course, rooted in, in Amsterdam in, in the early 40s. And so, um, but I, um, I, both, I admire the ambitions of both, both those movies and, and the execution as well. Yeah. And I, Killers of the Flower Moon also, to me, actually seems in conversation with, with these films, even though it's less sort of, uh, formalist it's less oblique but there are way different ways to tell the stories of the Osage County murders right and um, we talked about this on a previous podcast but apparently the initial draft early draft of the script was more about the FBI's investigation so it was really the story of the FBI and where this these murders fit into it and after consultations with people from the Osage tribe 
it was rewritten to shift the focus to the uh, Native Americans and like what they experienced. And I think that movie is also grappling a little bit with how to tell the story of this crime, these crimes that were perpetrated on people and in and whose effects are still being felt today, while not taking away the agency of those people, but also it also showing the fact that they were victims, like they were victims of like a pretty elaborate crime. And it's interesting to see that I think Glazer and Steve McQueen's films, which are fiction and documentary respectively, are using these yeah, formal strategies. And with Scorsese, it's like very plotty, like the strat, like, you know, he's trying to figure all that out, I feel like on the level of plot and characterization. Um, yeah, I think, and I, I'm wrestling with the Scorsese still, and I really am looking forward to it. And I know I can just imagine the, the different edits that must exist in that movie, the different emphases right. in the story. And it's interesting because having read the book, I was a little disappointed that. Oh, um, you okay? Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's it's a rare case. I actually, this is a case where I actually wish I maybe would have been better off not reading because it experienced the film more more pure. But, um, you know, the FBI stuff is really compelling, and it is that I think that the Jesse Plemons character, Tom White, in the movie is is one of the more interesting characters in 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 the story. Um, and I think by you know taking that element out of it, it it's hard because so much of the layers of like what the conspiracy actually is and how it was done comes to light because of the investigation. But I understand too why, I think I understand why Scorsese and Eric Roth in writing the script didn't want to turn it into just procedural mode, white men heroism, FBI, here we go. You know, and, and J. Edgar Hoover is a, is not never seen in the movie. He's a, he is a character in the book and he is um, perhaps very happily left off screen. Um, and I don't think the balance of the movie is, is completely perfect as a result. And there, there's there's a confusion that sets in, and I am still wrestling. I, li- I like the movie a lot, but it's but um, I think it, but there's something exciting in that grappling. I think he is trying to do right very much by the Osage uh, nation and their story, and um, and without um, denying them. And I think I think how you tell a story of a campaign of murder. And victimization without denying agency is is a really hard thing, and I don't even know if yeah. Art can actually has I can can do that in this case. I don't know, I, but I think he makes a valiant effort. This isn't a perfect segue, but you know, another film that kind of takes the procedural format and does something different with it, and tries to kind of twist that in ways to reflect on real social, uh, you know, inequities and you know, the way we live today is The Delinquents, which is in uncertain regard. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. It's in uncertain regard. And I feel like has been kind of like a sleeper hit of the festival or something. Um, People seem to really enjoy it. Um, And it's an Argentinian film by Rodrigo Moreno. It stars several people, including Laura Paredes from Tranque Laquen and some of the other kind of Borgesian Argentine films that we've seen in recent years. Uh, Justin, you want to maybe... Oh, Summarize the plot, Justin, oh, of this two-part, three-hour this... winding, uh, yeah. looping movie. <laughs> I mean, I will be very because I said I, I can't summarize a plot to save my life right now, and this one I would be loath to, to describe. I think most a lot of people would be described loath to dis, or um, just describe what happens. But it involves two men, and 
the playfulness of this movie is evident in the outset. Their names are Moran and Roman, and so the same letter. Their, their names are anagrams of each other, which gets at kind of some of the ideas of, of duality, duplication, uh, switched identities that are at play in the film. And they agree to carry out... The, the one of just the strangest. Is, um, uh, yeah, I was about to say I'm already. Uh, I'm uh, sort of no. You're sounding like um, you're sounding like Moran's lawyer or something. I am know? no. I'm trying to cast about. Maybe I'm saying someone yeah. else take. I don't know, but it's like they no. One is actually sort of. They are involved. They are involved in. <laughs> One of the stranger, like more inexplicable heist schemes involving a bank that I and and there definitely is an element of, of blackmail and coercion at, at work, and it involves one of them spending what he presumes or expects will be a f- just a few years in jail, while the other one is sort of holding down the fort outside. That's about as far as yeah. I'm gonna go. <laughs> I don't think and you yeah, can say more. It's, yeah, yeah, and it's but. It's really and, and then and many things happen. Many things happen, which um, I we started off this conversation talking about duration, and this is a three-hour film, and it's and what I found really disarming about it was that again, sort of a modulation, like it's not just cramming cramming it with incident. There are times when it just sort of meanders, both rhythmically and geographically. It goes off to this lovely sort of secluded countryside area where more things happen. It's romantic, and there, there, there are love stories embedded within the action as well. And just this sense of um, identities and senses of purpose getting lost throughout. Um, it's very funny at times um, and, and very melancholy. Um, and yeah, I was myself kind of, it, it, it's been a, I was drifting a little in and out throughout the, across the three-hour running time, but it kept kind of pulling me back in with just... Um, just the strangest thing, even just some of the music that was used. So I don't know, but yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah. Agree. Agree. I mean, I, I liked it. I, I liked it's um, the sort of idea of modest rebellions. You know, he steals the exact amount of money that he would have earned if he had worked at the bank until retirement, not, not no more and no less. More, yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, and you know, the wonderful, as you said, disarming, I will call it, it's like a diegetic soundtrack because eventually you find out where those weird noises are coming from. Um, and they have to do with the plot. So it's sort of like when someone says the title of the movie in the movie that happens with the music. Um, but mostly I just found it very delightful, like a very assured light hand at looking at this, these questions again, uh, that many of these films, um, focus on of, of how we're living our lives and how we live our lives in comparison to the, um, assumed moral structures of our societies. Um, and I, I found its playfulness about that and what happens when you rebel against that and the acknowledgement that like, it's not just like, yes, we have to revolt against capitalism. That's not a straight line here. Yeah. Um, and that I really liked that. An about interesting it. film to watch as people in France protest the raising of the retirement age. I don't know. I thought that was, uh, I hope, I hope uh, they release it in cinemas here. Um, to close off, I was wondering, Dennis, you started the festival with a four hour film by Rivette. Yes. And I was wondering, like, we haven't talked about the classics at all. Yeah. And uh, if you could say a few words about 
this uh, about Lamour Fu and how it was like to watch it in a new restoration here and like how it maybe even set the tone for all the long films that you then ended up seeing the lo- new long films god this seems so long ago um <laughs> yeah but is... five years ago when you arrived here <laughs> yeah <laughs> now, this was on day one um yeah. and i set aside a whole afternoon to watch jacques rivette's Lamour Fu. um and it's a film i've only ever seen in a honestly pretty shitty print mm. uh and this was pristine beautifully restored uh extraordinary performances um one of um not my absolute rivette's one of my favorite filmmakers and i don't know that i would put this in my you know top tier rivette films but uh kind of just uh, it kind of destroyed me anyway um I, I, there's, there's something about um this Again, like something we talked about earlier, this the slipperiness between um, reality and fiction that is at the heart of all his films, uh, and it's a film that's so much about performance and madness. Um, I, the, I, I, I also I, I have to say that I missed one of my other favorite films that's also showing here in a new restoration, which is uh, Oliveira's Abraham's Valley, which um, an image of Leonor Silvera, the the actress, adorns the Kenzan poster this year. Um, so yeah, duration also very much an issue when um, you know looking at the restorations here. Uh, and it's I have to confess it was very hard as a programmer to be going around um, and watching all these long films uh, and responding to them and having already uh, anxiety setting in about how we're going to show them. <laughs> Right, uh, the scheduling nightmare. The scheduling nightmare. I've already flashing forward to it. Like um, I, this is my but, advice to all programmers out there: just plug the Korosmaki film in any unwieldy little gap. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> just uh, it's, it's. You could show that four or five times. Exactly. <laughs> any unwieldy little gaps in the schedule. Just have a theater running Korosmaki on loop, and people can just go watch that. That's fine. I think fine. we'd all be for that. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, to Dennis, Rachel, and Justin for doing this wonderful little wrap look back at the 2023 Cannes Film Festival. Thank Thank you. you. See you all in America. (laughs) The Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.